All right, let's dig into God's Word together. If you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, or if you don't have one with you, it's on the screen as we read these words. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was, was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all those things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Just as they had been told. So it's Christmas time. And in a few days, we'll have our Christmas Eve services. Who's coming to the Christmas Eve services? Not many. You're missing out. Because we dive not only into celebrating Jesus at Christmas, but we also dive into my worst jokes of the year. And so I'm going to give you a bit of a preview. I did last week. and going to give you a bit more of a preview into what you can expect Christmas Eve. So what was Santa's best subject in school? Chemistry. Right. Terrible. Okay, out of 10, that's about a one, right? Okay, here we go. Um, for those who love education, here we go. What do you call Santa's little helpers? Subordinate clauses. See, amazing. A few English lit majors are loving that one right now. Okay, all right, for all of us, it gets, it gets, it gets better. What, which heavy metal band does Santa want to join? Slayer. 
Who's a Slayer fan? Come on. Yeah, there you go at the back. I love it. Okay. And then some controversial ones. You know, there's nothing like controversial Christmas jokes because this year hasn't been controversial enough. Here we go. This is don't blame me right now. So why has Santa been banned from dirty chimneys? Because they would give him a large carbon footprint. Oh, terrible. Okay, and then this is the worst. This is the worst, ready? This is the worst. Okay, who's the most controversial relative at Santa's Christmas lunch? Auntie Vaxer. <laughs> You're welcome. You could use them, take them home with you. All right, so here's the fun bit. Okay, let's get to each other in the room. This is, this is a polarizing Christmas trivia, right? Because we love to polarize ourselves this year. So here we go. So Christmas trivia. Are you turkey or ham? Hands up for turkey. Hands up for ham. Hands up for something else. Wow, a lot of something else. What's the something else? Prime rib. Vodka. Did I hear Vodka. Amazing. From the mouth of babes. Okay, are you presents open Christmas Eve or Christmas Day? Christmas Eve? Ooh, a few. Christmas Day? Yes. Okay, eggnog or mulled wine? Eggnog. Mm. Mulled wine. Yeah, there you go. Amazing. Fake or real Christmas tree? Fake. Like, disappointingly, hands in the air for that one, isn't it? It's like, yeah, I know. Oh, real Christmas tree. There you go. All right, and then finally, are you Christmas blizzards or Christmas beach? Snow or sand? Beach. Blizzards and snow. Yes. That actually, the f- previous service was all about the beach. Look at this. The hardy, wintry wonderlander here this morning. I'm much of a blizzard fan. And let me use that to get into uh, the sermon this morning because I better get there, which is I'm a blizzard guy. I'm a snow guy. I grew up at Christmas time as a teenager, we'd often go skiing. I'd go skiing in the Alps, somewhere in France or Switzerland, because actually there's nothing around being in snow in blizzards over Christmas. And I remember skiing down the slope one year, and if you've ever been skiing before, a little flutter of snow is nice, but all of a sudden things can change, and the snow increases with intensity, and before you know it, you're lost in a blizzard. You have something called whiteout on the slopes, where all you see is the white of the slope and the white of the sky, and you get disoriented and don't know where you're going. You're confused, you're disoriented, you're in the midst of a blizzard. It was near the end of the day, and we were skiing down the slope in complete whiteout. It was pretty scary. We didn't know what was going on, and so the only way we could actually get down was to grab onto reality, even though we couldn't see it. We'd grab on to the side of the cliff edge, and then we'd actually extend our ski poles to one another and hang on, and tether ourselves to one another, and tether ourselves to the reality of the hill so we wouldn't go off the edge. We knew reality was there, but we couldn't see it. We were in whiteout. And much of the last year has felt like the whiteout of a blizzard. We've had disorienting and confusing circumstances. It's been a blizzard that someone recently called the blizzard of CPR. C for COVID, P for political turmoil, and R for racial tensions. That all of these 
blizzards have come together to create a whiteout in our culture where we're disoriented, we're confused, and we're wondering what it's going to mean and how we get through this blizzard. Now, on top of those CPR blizzards have come your own personal ones as well. I've sat with many who have gone through tragedy this last year, the loss of loved ones, economic turmoil, relational trauma, not seeing loved ones for years, maybe perhaps postponing life events, missing out on life events because of CPR. And in these blizzards, we can ask the question, God, what are you doing? Where are you? The question so often has come to me, yeah, why? Where is God? What is He doing? All I can see is the blizzard, and I don't know how to get through it. In this passage today, we're going to look at how God works in blizzards, how He advances His kingdom, how He moves us forward through the blizzards of life. The first thing we see is this, that in the blizzards, God is moving undercover. He is moving undercover. No matter the appearance, no matter the whiteout, no matter the challenging circumstances that look like they are in control, there is a deeper reality in power. There is a deeper truth and power working through the blizzards of life. See, on the surface, it can be, can't it, that CPR looks like it's in charge. It could be that your future is being determined at the hands of COVID or political tensions or racial tensions or whatever else is going on in your life right now. It looks like that is calling the shots. But the point of the incarnation and the point of what actually Luke is trying to tell us is no matter the appearances, it's Jesus who is really in charge. That in the whiteout, there is the greater reality that Jesus is in charge, and you are in the safety of His hands. See, that's the point in these chapters. In verse, in, actually, in chapter 1, we didn't read. It talks about in the time of King Herod. We read in chapter 2, in, it was in the days of Caesar Augustus. In other words, Luke is pointing out that on the surface, it's these kings that are in charge that they look to be the most powerful people around. And in fact, at simply the hand and the decree of Caesar, everyone has to up sticks and move to their hometown for a season for this census. That just imagine sitting down and going, oh my word, you're turning on the news, and suddenly it says, right, everybody get up, quit your job, pack up the family, and travel to your hometown. Just because this one guy wants to take a census, you are under the control of this individual. It looks like Caesar is in charge. Where is God in the midst of this? But we quickly move on in Luke's account to see that actually, although he starts with, hey, it's in the time of Caesar, who can click his fingers and everyone moves around, that actually there's a deeper power, there's a deeper authority, there's a deeper sovereignty about to emerge. You read on and you see that although Caesar can maybe move people around his little geographic empire, 
There is a deeper sovereignty about to break into the world. Someone with the authority who can move the stars in the sky to announce his birth. Someone who can take a virgin womb and be incarnated. Someone who summons the angelic hosts, thousands upon thousands, to announce his birth. Someone, when they're born, who can actually manifest the glory of God in a small stable. And someone who, on their birth, is heralded as the one who will bring peace to all mankind. This is true power. This is the one who's truly in control. This is the one who truly is shaping the future. No matter what King Herod's are doing, no matter what Caesars are doing, this is the ultimate authority. And he's bursting onto the scene. But here's the thing. He comes undercover. One of the most remarkable surprises and scandals of this passage is the God of all creation, the God of the universe, the God who holds all things in his hands, comes and only about 10 people notice. Everyone else is going about their life under the control of what they think is the blizzard, but there's about five or 10 people who see, who see through the blizzard to the deeper reality. I mean, Mary and Joseph are not even around their family when they hear and see the good news of God has come. Shepherds. God chose to announce his arrival to shepherds. Shepherds were the outcasts of society. It was kind of a probation. If you've done a crime, get out of town to the fields and be a shepherd. These are the people who see through the blizzard to what is really going on. That God reveals his will, but it's often undercover. It's often in ways that are hidden. That he breaks through the blizzard and he shows you this is really the truth. His sovereignty, his will, his purposes are often undercover. Which is why those moments of clarity are to be treasured. It says Mary treasured these things in her heart. See, Mary and Joseph were about to go through years and years where this, the work of God seems to be his seems to be hidden. They were about to be banished to Egypt to escape King Herod who put a bounty on Jesus' head. They were about to raise him in obscurity and hiddenness. They were about to go through a blizzard. And so God gave them moments of clarity where they could see, ah, God truly is in control, that she would then treasure in her heart to see her through the hiddenness of the years ahead. I love the fact that Mary and Joseph, they had an angelic visitation. They had shepherds come and go, you never guess what we heard and it's here. Wise men would come, magi would come a few years later. In the midst of the blizzard, they'll become these clarities of, oh, we see what really is going on. And it said, Mary treasured these things in her heart so in the days of blizzards, she wouldn't lose her anchor. I'm sure there were days raising Jesus in obscurity where Mary turned to Joseph and said, are we crazy? 
Did that really happen? Is, is this guy really the savior of the world? Hidden. Undercover. And yet they'd been given gifts of clarity to treasure in their heart. In the blizzards of the year ahead, of blizzards of the now, where you're thinking, God, where are you? Why did you let this happen? What is going on? It seems like you're not doing anything. Are there moments of clarity in your heart that you're treasuring? That no matter what the blizzard is, I know God is with me. And you can point at His activity in your life where you go, it's undeniable. I remember when I was mid-twenties, you've heard this many times, but I left the church, tried to leave the Christian faith, tried to leave Jesus because I was going through blizzards, real deep blizzards in my mid-twenties going, God, where are you? You've abandoned me. And it made me question the whole thing. And for a few years, I walked around London in a blizzard, denying the existence of Jesus. But do you know what it was in the blizzard? That I couldn't untether myself from the realities of when he's given me clarity in the past. I just couldn't untether myself. I couldn't deny what I had seen. I couldn't deny what I had experienced. I couldn't deny that although I was in the blizzard, I could not deny that I had seen reality. And I'm going to believe reality more than the whiteout. I wonder if, like Mary, you need to refresh those moments and treasure them in your heart. Not let them go to a mind that forgets, but to a mind that keeps remembering. Where Mary turns to Joseph and says, do you remember the angel? I know this is pretty bleak right now, but do you remember that? Do you remember the wise men coming? Do you remember the shepherds? Do you remember when the glory shone around? I was in utter pain of childbirth and the glory of the Lord shone around. Do you remember? She treasured these things in her heart because we keep these treasures for moments of whiteout. What are the treasures in your heart? In the whiteout, he gives us treasures to remember. But secondly, in the whiteout, we remember that God moves and delights to move in the whiteout. He delights to move in opposition. He delights to move in unfavorable circumstances. It's staggering, isn't it, that you look at the circumstances of Jesus' birth and we're reminded that the greatest move of God, his own birth, the incarnation of God, followed by his resurrection, Pentecost and the sending of his Holy Spirit, the birth and growth of the church, all of God's kind of A-list miracles, where the kingdom of God burst and advanced with power, they all happened in unfavorable circumstances. They all happened with, in the context of political opposition, of cultural rejection of social minority. God does his best work in the midst of suffering, in the midst of opposition. 
Now, this is not how we would plan it, and it's not how the disciples wanted it. Time and time again, the disciples would ask Jesus something along these lines, Jesus, when are you going to take power and save the world? When are we going to come, when are we going to be on top? When are we going to actually be in charge? When are we going to actually be the majority? When are we actually going to be the popular group? Because it's then that we get to advance your kingdom. But every time Jesus rebuked the disciples and said, that's not how my kingdom comes. In fact, they even tried to rebuke his way. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. They went, no, we're going to go to Rome and take power. But he had to rebuke them. It's it's the same today amongst the church, isn't it? As we enter into this new season of Christians in this cultural moment, we're recognizing, and we've already recognized in cities like Los Angeles, that we've moved from the majority to the minority. That followers of Jesus are no longer respected, but disrespected. We used to have, at least we used to have like the high moral ground, you are the goody two-shoes of society, but now we have the low ground. You are what is wrong with society. It's disorienting, it's confusing, it's white out, and go, God, what's going on? We thought the curve was just up and to the right, but we now find ourselves very quickly crashing down. And our response could be, God, we need to restore the majority. We need to restore the rule and reign of your ethic in this land. Because it's when we're in control or when your legislation is in line with your kingdom or is when we get to say what goes on, that's when your kingdom will bless this nation. Except that's not the story of the incarnation. That's not the story of Jesus who did everything he could not to climb the steps to a throne but to the steps of a cross. You see, Christianity never requires Christendom for fruitfulness. In fact, God often does His best work in what the Bible calls exile. Exile. Look at Joseph in Egypt, Daniel and Esther in Babylon, Nehemiah in the time of the Persians, Jesus in the Roman Empire, the early church, and then still to this day, The rapidly growing churches of the world, the most empowered, vibrant, fruitful churches are most often in persecution. You see, there's something about a good exile that God actually uses. There's something about a good exile which means that we become more potent and powerful in our faith. This is The first time Christianity took power in the fourth century with Constantine, etc., was the time that Christians began to realize this is doing us harm, not good. We are becoming nominal and compromising rather than potent and faithful. And it sparked what is now the monastic movement where people voluntarily put themselves under exile so they could actually fall to their knees and say, God, we need you. See, a good exile will deepen your faith. It was Tim Keller who said, you don't know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. 
Exile can purify the church. I'm excited in these moments of whiteout that God uses these exile moments to purify us. As Peter said, do not be surprised by these fiery trials that God allows into His church. They cleanse us. They refine us. It was Mike Breen who said, who's a missiologist and a pastor, he said there's three plagues that are affecting the American church, all beginning with the letter C, consumerism, celebrity, and competition. We see it, don't we? We feel it. And there's nothing like exile to purge these out of us, to bring us back to the potency of following Jesus, not in consumerism, but in otherness, not in celebrity, but in hiddenness, not in competition, but togetherness. And an exile also leads to an empowered church. You see, we're called to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, to do the things that Jesus did, to be salt and light in our world. And you look at church history, and the moments of greatest empowerment is the, are the moments of greatest need. Because in our greatest need, we fall to our knees and we cry out for the living God. We get rid of the myth that we have something to offer. Because opposition is saying, I don't buy what you're bringing. I don't buy a church of marketing or lights or fog machine or celebrity. I just don't buy it because that's no different than what we have. And it's when we fall to our knees and say, Jesus, we are cracked pots. The only thing we have to offer is the treasure within, Jesus Christ. And it's when the church falls to its knees, comes to an end in of itself, and cries out for the power of the Holy Spirit to be Jesus in this nation. That's when the church becomes potent once again. The great revivals of history have not come in times of popularity. They've come in times where the church is on its knees, crying out for a move of God. So though whiteouts can be disorienting, whiteouts can go, where is God? But He's moving. I, I know it in the past. I know His story is weaving through my life and I'm never going to forget. And actually, I'm not afraid of a whiteout because this actually brings out the best in the church. We're going to fall on our knees and we're going to pray that God moves in power. But a whiteout also reminds us how God works. And that is God works not through the spectacular breakthroughs of spectacular Christians, but He promises to work through the ordinary small acts of the ordinary people like you and me. You see, it's tempting in these moments to go, God, raise up someone significant. You've got to raise up an amazing leader who's gifted and amazing and has like 20 million followers on Instagram who does a killer tweet that breaks through the malaise. Someone, God, you've got to do something. And yet the story of the incarnation reminds us that God's greatest movement, God's greatest weapon is not a mega celebrity. But nobody's like you and me. 
So it's, it's interesting, isn't it, that God actually comes to two people who are gifted to do the most powerful thing of all humanity, one to give birth and both to raise the incarnated God. And it was Mary and Joseph. Little old Mary and Joseph. Nobody's in poverty from part of the world that no one even knew. This is who God uses. This is who He wants to come to. This is how He demonstrates His power. And this is how He brings His kingdom into the world is through ordinary people doing ordinary things. It's amazing that Mary and Joseph were not only chosen from obscurity, but they were chosen to do things that were not spectacular. It wasn't Mary. You're going to go on a speaking tour. You're going to have floodlights around you. You're going to deliver thousands of millions. Look, you are just little Mary now, but wait, one day your name will be in stars and you will bring Jesus to the nations. No. Mary, you are blessed above all people because I'm calling you to give birth. What? Yep. All I'm asking you to do is give birth and raise this child. Can you do that? I can do that. Joseph, be a good dad to this young boy. Shepherds, just go out and tell people what you've seen. The kingdom of God comes through ordinary people being faithful and obedient to daily acts of following Jesus. So easy in our day and age to think the spectacular will save Christianity. The catchphrase will win millions. The spectacular. But God in the incarnation shows us the paradigm of it's not a few doing spectacular things. It's his people daily doing small acts of faithfulness and obedience to Jesus Christ, which he then anoints to transform the world. Raising your children in the ways of Jesus. Serving the poor in hiddenness, but with love and compassion. Faithfully praying for your colleague who's going through a tough time. Inviting your neighbor to Alpha, who's struggling with the big questions of life. Deciding I'm going to actually get involved with VKids and VYouth to actually help parent and model faith. Loving my enemy when it's the last thing I want to do. Forgiving those who persecute me. Jesus doesn't call the spectacular to spectacular things. He calls us spectacularly ordinary to spectacularly but anointed ordinary things. And when we're in a whiteout, we don't say, God, break through with some miracle, great, break through with some seismic event. It's God, use me. Use us. Every day to be salt and light to those around me. This is how God moves.
he moves undercover. He moves in unfavorable circumstances. And he moves through you and me, not seeking the spectacular, but doing spectacularly anointed, ordinary things. That's how God moves. Now at the birth of him very self, the prophet Isaiah said, and it's in this undercover, ordinary, unspectacular moments, that's when the promise is fulfilled and his kingdom shall have no end. This is the promise. This is our God. This is our anchor in the whiteout and our hope for the year ahead. Let's stand together.